Welcome, welcome. This is Daniel Blackman back for another episode of Blue Topsy here with Eric Cohen, who is fresh off of Dragon Con. That is correct, Daniel. How was Dragon Con? It was with the wife. Yeah, so my wife went and we took our littlest for three of the four days that we went. Did you go to the parade? We we passed by the parade. Oh, man, you got to go to the parade. Well, look, we've been to the parade before, but the thing is, if you go to the parade, then you can't queue up for whatever big speaker that you want to see. So while people were watching the parade... We are in line to see it. All right. Well, we're going to tag team next time. Next year, I'm going to go with my kids. All right. We're going to have to switch up, split up, and try and get to as much as we can. If you were a superhero, who, who, who would you be? What's what's your favorite superhero? Who would you grow up liking? Superhero. I'm not big into superhero. So, so who's, I, your, who's your Dragon Con, you know, inner you? Okay. Well, let me be honest here. My wife, she's the one that loves all the kind of... So you got dragged there. No, but I, I really like... Listen, all, <laughs> you could sit there for like eight hours and just people watch. You could sit like in the atrium or the Marriott or wherever and just stare at the costumes. But I did like the Doctor Who stuff, so maybe I could dress up like that. But the funniest thing that happened was... So our little one, so he's eight. Okay. So he's, you know, he's pretty personable. And he's like, I want to take pictures. So he turns around and he goes, guess what? I'm going to go ask him for a picture. He gives him to do a selfie. So he would go around like this. I, I realize you guys can't visualize this. Maybe we'll have to show this online. Pictures of him. <laughs> he would go with his phone and go, hey, can I take a selfie? And so then there's YouTubers that we watch, and we ran into them. And he was... He's, so he's a little celebrity. Um, he's, he's shy, but not shy. Shy, but not shy. That's all good. Well, I, I hope everybody out there enjoyed their Labor Day weekend. But it's time to get back to work. Time to roll up our sleeves. Time to get great people elected like our guest in the studio today, Sarah Amico, who we love. Sarah, say hello to everybody. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, that's good to know. Well, first of all, I mean, I know everybody hears about Stacey Abrams. We love Stacey. We are going to work hard and tirelessly to get Stacey and Lindy Miller and all kind of great Democrats elected this year. But today we have a businesswoman, a wife, a mom, a phenomenal woman that is really shaking up a lot of things around Georgia, getting a lot of national attention. And hopefully today you guys will get to know much more about not only her platform, but, you know, really what she's about. So starting off, I, I just want to open it up to you, Sarah, and just let people know why you even got into running. I mean, we had this conversation about how you told your two little girls uh, that you were going to get into the race. And there's a great story behind it. So why don't you share with us what even prompted you to get to this and how your family <laughs> responded? Yeah. So I, I guess I partly blame my high school government teacher and partly my elementary school teachers. I have been an American government uh, nerd, a true believer in this system, um, probably since I was six or eight years old. And in fact, when I went to undergraduate, I studied politics. So the irony is not lost on me at all uh, that here I am. But I always thought of it as something that was more of an academic interest. So uh, in fact, I worked briefly on Capitol Hill. Um, wow. when I, yeah, when I was in college, I got a fellowship one summer um, at Georgetown University to study with a famous economist who was a Soviet refugee named George Vichnitz. Huge deal to study with him. Great free market economist. And um, part of the condition of the fellowship was that you had to work on the Hill or in some government agency. So I actually worked for a Republican <laughs> named Jim Talent, a congressman from Missouri who was the chairman for the Committee on Small Business in the U.S. House of Representatives. I worked in a subcommittee office 
which for anyone listening who's not super familiar with the federal legislature, the subcommittee offices are really where a lot of the drafting of legislation and sort of the the ins and outs of the policy work take place. And we worked on women's business center legislation. So I really loved the idea of what public policy could do for people's lives, and in particular for job creation, for people that wanted to start businesses, and for what it could do for the economy. Um, but unfortunately, that lovely idealism during my time in the Committee on Small Business also collided with what even 20 years ago was a harsh reality of partisan gridlock. And so my observation at the time, funny enough, um, and again, this was probably 1998, I mean, literally 20 years ago, but what I saw was that the people who were the hardest working, the smartest, the most reasonable, the most willing to work with the other side were sort of the perennial losers <laughs> in Congress. And it was it was stunning for somebody who grew up, you know, I, I would definitely put myself on the side of optimism and idealism. I, I told Daniel before, but I suffer from true believerism. I, I really believe in this remarkable country, the system of government we have. But I've also studied it enough to understand that the design of our government isn't sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. What animates the American Republic is the participation of the individual citizens. Well, you, you said true believerism, right? So I want to kind of, you know, it's no secret that you're very much guided by your faith. And, you know, we're, we're intrigued by it. And throughout this conversation, we're going to touch on it probably more than once, Eric. So oh, yes, we are. We're, we're, we're <laughs> going we're gonna to dig deep and, and go into that. But you know, I, I want to hear your perspective on how your Christianity and how your faith has sh shaped you as a person, because obviously we're in the South and in the South uh, for many of the constituencies and the voting populations here, whether they be conservative or democratic or independent, um, religion and faith guides a lot of people's principles and their decisions. How did your faith help to guide you into the position you're in right now? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I've been very open about talking about this. And um, I, I am an evangelical Christian. I am married to somebody who's not a believer. So that's either something that looks like the beginning of a sitcom or <laughs> thoroughly confusing, depending on your point of view. Uh, I'm a Calvinist. So for those of you who know what that is, you know that I believe he's going to get there anyway. So it all works out. Um, but it's funny. It kind of actually all goes back to that first experience in government. Um when I left the Hill after that internship, I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Like, I don't want to come back and make my living doing this because these people are crazy <laughs> and really inefficient. And I happened um, to have the opportunity to move to France and study abroad. And then I got an internship for a Fortune 500 company in the UK that summer. And the experience I had there with job creation um, was it was a total meritocracy. In the business world, the harder you worked, the luckier you got. The more reasonable and pleasant you were to work with in a team, the more collaborative you were, the further you could go, and the more impact you could have. So I came back and applied to business school. Hmm. I was like 20 years old at the time. And, and I that, only, that was Harvard. Yeah, yeah, I only applied to one. My parents were like, don't you want like a safety school or something? And I thought, <laughs> no, no, I want to go to Harvard. Really? Like I really felt even then that that was the path God was putting me on. That's beautiful. And and so I departed from, you know, what at that time had been a childhood love of American government um, and really felt like my calling would be to give people a means to provide for their family, to create. I mean, it's a magical thing, right? And I've, I've had the opportunity to do it for over 15 years now. Um, and then about two years ago, 
Um, my pastor and his wife have become very good friends and she and I would go to lunch, my uh, pastor's wife, you know, with reasonable regularity. And I would talk to her about, you know, I really feel like God is gearing up for something in my life to change. And I don't know what it is. In fact, the, the funny thing is I thought I would go to divinity school. Wow. Um, yeah. That, that, that would have been a huge shift. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then um, I spent about a year in what's called a leadership track study with our pastor, his wife, and a group of women who were sort of lay leaders in the church. And during the course of that pretty deep theological study, um, I really felt something began to move, that I love my job. I have you know, worked very hard for it. We've created thousands of jobs. I run a company that's 90 years old. I think I'm the first woman to ever run it. Um, and it's a great example to set for my girls and for little girls everywhere who want to see um, people who look like them and that are women at the head of the table, not just at the table. So, so. Uh, one thing I want to do, mm -hmm. um, because I, I really want Eric to jump in, on some of the aspects that we talked about, but in staying with what you just mentioned about mm -hmm. your faith, Bishop uh, Michael Curry recently said that Christianity must reclaim its soul. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, his exact quote was, in our culture, in this country, particularly at this time, Christianity is often presented in such a way that it leaves Jesus of Nazareth and his love out of the equation. Mm -hmm. Why has our, and, and, I, and I don't want you to you know, go too far into it because again, this is going to be a lot of our conversation, but why is it that we are seeing folks that are, are saying they're Christians and saying that they're guided by their principles, but it seems that the aspect of love and compassion and empathy seem to not be there, not just in politics, but it just seems like we have entered into such a time of hostility in our country when we are so-called a Christian nation. You know, I, I don't like to assign motives to anyone. I'd yeah. like to believe that nobody does that on purpose. Um, you know, we've all lost our way from time to time on any number of issues. Anybody who knows me knows on occasion you'll hear a four-letter word here and there, and I'm working on it. But honestly, I've been working on it for like 20 years, and it hasn't gotten that, that much yeah. better. Don't worry about it. You're okay. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I don't want to assign motive to anybody. But what I will say is I think we've let our leaders fail to uphold a higher standard for a very long time. And so part of, you know, what drove me to do this, and it's funny, my pastor's wife actually pulled me aside at Easter this year, and she said, do you remember when we had that lunch? And I said, yeah. And she goes, it's funny, you ended up running for office. We didn't see that coming. But part of it was to just be an example of somebody from my faith tradition that doesn't have those characteristics that the bishop talked about. And, and I think you know, we've got to do better as people. The, the, I always tell people the enemy of democracy is not the GOP. It's not another candidate. It's not even Donald Trump. I mean, he's not particularly good for democracy, but he's yeah. not the enemy. The enemy of democracy is apathy. Yeah. And so I think the thing is, is those leaders have failed in that way because we've let them. And we forget that the most powerful voice at the table in the American Republic is the citizen. So for me, I think that's the biggest issue. And what I will say, too, is, you know, as somebody who's an evangelical, and look, that term has been around since the 1600s, <laughs> and it literally just means that you want to share the good news with anybody. I mean, that, that's all it means. It doesn't mean anything about guns. It doesn't mean anything about gay marriage. It doesn't mean anything about abortion. It means you want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. That's right. it. And it's been co-opted now by people who found right. it politically expedient to use that term 
to create fear. I'll probably say hijack, not co-opted. Yeah, yeah I mean, maybe, and, and maybe that's right. But, but the point is, is that that perversion of the gospel, and it is a perversion. There is nothing in the Bible about firearms, as it turns out. There's a whole lot about how you care for poor folks, that's by yeah. the way. Yeah. Um, there's a lot about how you're a good neighbor, how we bear one another's burdens. Um, you know, even my daughters who are five and seven can tell you the story of the good Samaritan. And the whole idea was this was somebody who took his own resources and Mm -hmm. cared for somebody for whom, you know, in the tribalistic sort of sense, he should not have cared. Right. And so, uh, I think we've let people get away with it, but I also think that people have used it in a, in a sort of weaponized fashion. And for the church, you know, my message to other believers, any of you who are listening to this, I'm sympathetic that there are issues you might feel strongly uh, in the Democratic platform that might conflict with your church doctrine. My personal point of view is our religion governs ourselves and our families, but no one else. I mean, that's part of the beauty of living in the United States is that we're free from state religion. We have the freedom to worship or not as we desire. And so you can be pro-life and be a Democrat, but want other women to make that decision. You can lead with empathy. You can not agree with gay marriage. Uh, Don't have one. It's a simple outcome. You can pray for them if you're so inclined. But we don't make civil laws based on anyone's religion in this country. That's right. So that segues into something that Daniel and I have talked about a lot. So, like, a lot of Democrats and progressives here, like, evangelical Christian, and, like, as we've talked about, it's like, I have a Jewish background. I'm a non-believer. I'm an atheist. And there's a little tingle up the spine because what we've seen... What's weaponized Christianity, particularly from the right wing, they essentially have said, you know what? Separation of church and state, that doesn't exist. We want to bring forth Christian laws, essentially. They want to co-opt the government with religion. And what you're clearly saying is, I want to tell everybody I love Jesus, but there's a separation of church and state. And I think that that's, that's something that has to be conveyed because I know there are progressives who are uncomfortable with that, you know? Yeah, I mean, look, I've gotten a lot of, I've gotten a lot of that feedback. And the one thing I'm really proud of with this campaign is I've never been anything other than who I am. So, you know, in the primary, there was a lot of pressure to take the word Christian off of my literature, for example. I didn't put it on there because I think it's a qualification for office. I I actually am also on our literature. It says I'm a wife and a mom, which are, by the way, also not qualifications for holding statewide office. Um, But why I put it in there is I want people to know who I am. I don't want them to come back six months from now and say, you hid that from us. I want them to know the whole of how I see the world. And how I see the world is that that deep and abiding faith forms my view of the universe. But I have a secondary and almost equal love for the American institution and style of government. And and that says that my religion is for me, but it's not my ability or desire to ever put that on anyone else. In fact, as I said before, I'm married to a (laughs) non-believer. And so... You know, I can get along with anybody, but I do understand why that makes people upset. And what I would say to them is this. It makes you nervous if it puts that tingle in your spine, if it makes you upset to hear the word evangelical with a Democratic candidate. That's not because of Jesus. It has nothing to do with the teachings of the New Testament or the Bible or Christ. It is only about a small but very vocal group of people who have used it to do the antithesis of what the gospel tells us to do. Jesus said his new commandment to us was to love one another as he has loved us. And think about what that means. The guy died a horrible, 
death on a cross for people he would never meet, never know, and many of whom would never appreciate it, right? That sacrificial love is what he's saying. And so I think it's unfortunate. But look, if I if I do nothing else in this race right. except show people there is a different representation of my right. faith, I'm going to hold my head high. And you you told the story. I started to tell a story yeah. earlier about my daughters, but I didn't know how to explain to a four and a six year old when we started this <laughs> what I'm doing. That made me laugh. And Sophia <laughs> says, our older one says, "What are you? What is Lieutenant Governor?" And I explained it. And now she's very adept. By the way, yeah. she understands the state legislature and everything. But what I told her at the time is I'm going to tell a lot of people about Jesus because I knew she would at least understand that. And, and she would understand it in sort of the Matthew chapter 25 sense, right? That we care for the widow, the orphan, the prisoner, the indigent, the injured, um, and that we care for them in a way that's sacrificial love, that puts others above ourselves. And, and she understood that. So one thing, I, you mentioned your husband. Mm-hmm. and. You know, I, I don't know if, how many of our listeners know his story. And, you you know, I'm, I think it's very important. You know, I was very fortunate as a kid to have a father that served in the United States Army. Uh, my dad was a United States Army Ranger. I lived in uh, Vicenza, Italy. I had a chance to walk up the Leaning Tower of Pisa. had a mm-hmm. chance to go to Florence and Venice and all over the place. And, and your husband's from Italy, if he, I'm not mistaken. And he's, he is, he's an immigrant. He is. He is. And it's funny. He's also military. I don't know if you knew that, but for a thousand years. So we can trace my husband's family back to Amico D'Amico in the year 1000, wow. um, who led a group of mercenaries, if I remember correctly, to retake Sicily from the Moors um, at the request of the French government. And what's funny is apparently the French governor on the island then proceeded to back out of the deal. So Amico D'Amico then marched his band of mercenaries and took over the French governor's land for himself. Wow. <laughs> um, and they have literally been admirals and generals in Italy for centuries. And um, in fact, they used to be the advisors to the kings of Italy. Wow. Uh, Andrea is the last Amico male in the family line. He oh, has man. two daughters, and he's now an American citizen and has English-speaking children. <laughs> so, and, and was the only one not to be in the military. But yeah, we have a, you know, um, so it's funny. One of his relatives, his great-grandfather, I think, um, was the Italian commander over Croatia during World War II. And when Italians, when Italy made its pact with Nazi Germany, he was commanded to round up ethnic minorities and Jews in Croatia, and he refused and instead had his troops form a perimeter around the coast so that the minorities and Jews could escape to the sea, um, for which he was, of course, summarily executed in public um, by uh, by his compatriots. And if you go, I think now at the Holocaust Museum in Israel, there's a garden for trees for the righteous Gentiles, and I think one of them is actually dedicated to Andrea's great-grandfather. Wow. So he's a rich history there, but he came here for school. And did you guys embed his history and culture and how you guys raise your daughters? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, our girls are definitely predominantly English speakers. They have, it's kind of funny, limited vocabulary, but perfect accents in Italian. <laughs> so it's kind of a hoot. But we mix languages, foods, cultures, um, you know, and that's part of the beauty of the American experience, right? I don't think that makes me less American. I think that sort of makes our family's experience quintessentially American and connected to centuries of other people. Right. You know, Andrea came here for school, and when he looked around as a kid who had grown up watching NASA and Reagan and the space program and just being in awe, um, he saw that the American dream was a real thing, and he was stunned, so he stayed. And it wasn't until years and years later that we met. Wow. Yeah. So I want to veer off 
for a moment because you're running for lieutenant governor. I am. All right. Most people, they don't realize what does lieutenant governor actually do? <laughs> yeah, this is like politics 101 right now. Oh my gosh. This makes my inner nerd really happy. So, so first of all, the lieutenant governor obviously is, I, I call it the sexiest office. You didn't know what you were voting for, <laughs> I love it. Um, but it is actually the tactician's dream role in Georgia politics. So, you know, if God forbid you ever need it, um, there is obviously succession, or if the governor is incapacitated for any reason, you do have the acting governor status. So first and foremost, there's that, and we're always hoping that that's never needed. But sometimes, you know, uh, a governor, Stacey Abrams, for example, that's might right. get plucked right up to be in somebody's administration, mm -hmm. or and and in that case, you would use it. Or if, God forbid, we have Governor Brian Kemp, um, you know, look, in the Me Too era, I'm not sure all those guys will make it four years. <laughs> um, so... So and on top of that, I love the swipe because on top of that, I think people need to know that even if Stacy is elected governor, let's just be honest, right? At the end of the day, we want someone that not only has her back, but that can be there in the event that something, if something were day to one. Right. Day, day one, day one. And then, so the, the day to day role though, the meat of this and what makes my inner public policy nerd happy mm -hmm. is that you're the presiding officer of the state Senate. So in Georgia, we have a 40 day state legislature session, That's right. um, two houses. And in the state Senate, um, the lieutenant governor is the presiding officer. So that involves a number of things. Um, it involves helping assign committee memberships, helping um, populate the committee on administration and assignments, uh, separate committees. It also involves helping cue the order of debate, um, helping prioritize. You obviously have a hell of a bully platform as right. well, um, especially for a former media executive like <laughs> myself, somebody who knows how to wield it. Um, but the thing that I think is so powerful about it is, that's very difficult for um, the Republicans to strip away is that you can also determine what ultimately gets to the floor of the Senate for a vote. And because in that 40 day session, you only have 28 days to get through the Senate to what they call crossover day when it needs to go over to the house and the general assembly. And if it doesn't cross over, it cannot become law. Wow. So, um, you know, for example, this year there were not one, two, but, or three or four, but, uh, sorry, or three, but four bills that passed four separate bills that passed both chambers with overwhelming majority support from both parties, which would have enabled our EMCs, which bring electricity to uh, rural populations. It would have allowed our EMCs to bring high-speed internet to those same populations using existing infrastructure. It's yeah. a workaround mm -hmm. while we figure out what to do with infrastructure for the 626,000 Georgians who don't have access to high-speed internet. Especially in rural and South Georgia. Especially in rural. And it's a real economic impediment to creating jobs, recruiting businesses, and also to making our students competitive if they want to go to college. I mean, I've literally met families who take their kids to the McDonald's parking lot to get Wi-Fi right. to do their homework. But this bill, um, I think it was Senate Bill 402, was the final version of the four that they passed. It went to the back to the Senate for the final vote, and on day 40, Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle sat on it. Huh. He refused hmm. to bring it to the floor for a vote. What was his so rationale? Well, he never said. Yeah, but I'm presuming so he was really that hoping for some right. campaign cash from AT&T or somebody <laughs> who like didn't want the EMCs to deliver broadband. And, you know, so this role is way more impactful on everyday Georgians' lives than you realize. And if you think about how the state Senate, I also think about tone at the top. That's what we call it in the corporate world. Um, the leadership in our state Senate, you know, there were some good things that came out. Uh, there's no party that has a monopoly on good ideas, but 
Yeah, this year Casey Cagle focused on things like passing a resolution about kneeling football players on a field. And if, if you think about what families are worried about after their kids go to bed, I don't think that's in the top five, <laughs> top 25, top 20, <laughs> 20 yeah. 40. No. And, you know, we had this adoption bill with state funded agencies to allow them to discriminate against same sex couples. And, and as an outsider, as a business owner, somebody who doesn't come from elected office, all I'm thinking is, where's your bill about like my kids being safe in their schools? Like, yeah. where's your perennial funding for public schools with a formula that's not in the 198 from the 1980s? Where is your resolution that every sick child in 2018 Georgia should be able to go to a doctor? Those are the things I think families are worried about. So you kind of just wanted to like stand in front of their face and clap and say, focus people. <laughs> yeah. Like there are real issues that are solvable problems. And you're busy, like, over here dealing with kneeling football players and other, you know, they're not fringe issues. I know people feel strongly, but it's just not what's going to make our state prosper for generations. There, there are issues that, unfortunately, keep us distracted, right? And, and I think one thing that attracted me to you as a candidate was your compassion. I mean, the fact that you offered health care for your workers, the fact that you talk about, you know, getting union drivers and all these areas that I think are amazing. But you gave this story that I want you to share with the people here today um, about uh, Stewart County, Georgia. And, mm -hmm. and that was the one that touched me more than anything else. And the reason why I think we're seeing this shift, because you keep hearing about a blue wave, right? I think it's more of a of an awakening of people that are consciously saying we want substance, we want purpose, we want people that are going to think about a senior citizen on a fixed income. We want people that are going to go out and unapologetically take a stance and, and regardless of the repercussion, they're going to say what's right and they're going to say what's wrong. And regardless of, of the consequences of it, because we see a lot of people that are elected and what they're doing, Sarah, is they're making decisions based on getting reelected. So what we do, our fault in not holding them accountable, is we, we work our butts off to get great candidates in office. And then whether it's the campaigns, the state party, the individuals, we go from election cycle to election cycle. I think the challenge is we miss that that time in between an election and then getting reelected. But I want you I want to go back and not veer too far off. Stewart County, Georgia. Talk to us about the story that you share on the campaign trail. Yeah, it's funny. You talked about issues that keep us distracted. I'd say not just distracted, but divided. I agree. And and this health care issue should be the one thing where all Georgians, you know, look, I'm not, as you know, a lifelong Democrat. Yeah. I, I was a, a pretty committed Republican, actually, uh, and was an independent for a number of years. And then coming back to the Democratic Party sort of felt like coming home. But the issue, and I would argue, by the way, my stances on things, haven't changed since I was 16 or 18 years old. I think the parties have changed uh, yeah. quite a lot. Yeah. Um, the two things that really drove that transition for me are I genuinely feel right now, and we can talk about this more in a minute, that the Democratic Party represents the party of business and economic growth and development, but with a conscience. That's right. You know, making a decision, for example, to pay for all of my employees' health insurance premiums for them and their family yep. uh, and give them good insurance. That's right. Uh, that wasn't the optimally profitable thing to do, but it was the best long-term investment in building the kind of company I want to be a part of. And so, um, but it comes back to these issues. Uh, the second one, not just the party of business, but healthcare. I mean, gosh, it doesn't matter, guys, if you're young or old, gay or straight, minority, Caucasian, male or female, Republican or Democrat. 
or anything in between, because I don't think most folks line up very well with either party, actually. <laughs> um, healthcare is the one thing that should bring us all together. And the facts on the ground are this. Georgia, as a state, has had a government controlled by one party, the Georgia GOP, for 14 years. And for eight of those 14 years, they have controlled legislative majorities in both houses of our state government and every single statewide executive office. In that time, Georgia has seen seven rural hospitals close since 2013 alone. We are at risk of losing many more. We have 64 counties without a pediatrician. We have 79 counties without an OBGYN. We have one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world, not just in the country. And as of That's shameful, yeah. And it, look, mm-hmm. as of this morning, I read in the AJC again today, we have nine counties with no doctor at all. And so I have made it my mission, to your point about Webster County, to travel Stewart, all Stewart. over, sorry, Stuart, yeah. uh, the Stuart Webster Hospital, um, to travel all over this state and meet folks who are living with the consequences of that failure of leadership. And I have done it in Rabin. I have done it in Habersham. I have done it all over South Georgia. And I wanted to go specifically to Stuart Webster Hospital. Yeah. It's a 25-bed hospital. There were actually two hospitals relatively nearby that both closed around the same time. It closed in 2013. It now looks like the set of, uh, you know, if you're older, Grey Gardens, uh, the younger folks are like, what's that? So American (laughs) Horror Story, Rural Hospital (laughs) Edition for y'all. It's overgrown. It's crumbling. It's sad. It stands there as a stark reminder of how much the Georgia Republicans have failed us on rural health care. But what it means for the people who live there now is they have to go 60 miles to the right. nearest hospital. So we did a Facebook Live video from there. It's very emotional for me. Uh, healthcare is just the issue that really probably tipped me into running for office. Um, but we left after our video, and there was a car upside down in the ditch. I, I mean, I swear to y'all, it was maybe five minutes down the road. And we've got our girls in the car, my husband and I, because we took them on a tour through southwest Georgia with the campaign for four days. And my husband turns to me and he says, whoever's upside down in that ditch, and they're surrounded by the ambulance, the fire trucks, the police, whoever's upside down in that ditch has to go 60 miles to the nearest hospital Didn't instead of five minutes Democrat down the road. Republican, Doesn't make one bit of difference. Not one bit of difference. And, and, and my heart, you know, hurts for these people, but my throat closed a little bit thinking, what if whatever caused them to go off the road would have been us, you know, just 15, right. 20 minutes earlier with my yeah. go- daughters here. Yeah. And the next morning, I'm, uh, we went to church down and we went to lunch in Shellman. And I'm sitting at lunch with a woman uh, and with Joyce Barlow, who's running for the state house down there, fabulous candidate, RN, and one of her friends, who I think might have also been a nurse. And she's very quietly listening, this friend of Joyce's. And I'm telling the story about the ambulance and she waits until I'm finished. And she said, well, we also lost our ambulance services where I live. And so you have wealthy people who now are buying the special life flight insurance. Right. If you get in a car accident, they'll life flight you, but regular <laughs> folks can't wow. afford it. Right. Mm-hmm. Her mom, when she had a medical issue, I don't know if it was a stroke or what it was, they had to call around to figure out how to get her an ambulance. And what was, and as I'm hearing her tell the story and her eyes are tearing up and I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I hope I don't have mascara on. Cause I'm about to make a mess of it. <laughs> Um, she says, you know, my mom didn't make it. Uh, she was pronounced deceased as we were, the ambulance was finally pulling into Columbus. And so guys, this is 
it's not about being Republican or Democrat. It's about having leaders that want to do the damn job. And you know, the, the thing is, for all of our listeners, and, and Eric could co-sign this, but you hear her voice uh, through the airwaves, but the, 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 the passion we see on your face, yes. um, and it's real. You know, and I think one of the main reasons that we wanted you on was because that's the kind of leadership we not only want, but that we need. And, you know, these stories are, uh, they need to be shared. You know, you mentioned uh, wireless broadband and other things earlier. And, and, you know, I've been in South Georgia. My cell phone hasn't worked for 10, 15 miles. And I can only imagine, I mean, I can care less if they're white or black or Latino or if they're Republican or Democrat. You know, when you go into these areas and you see hospitals closed and you see schools dilapidated and you see food deserts, I mean, these are issues that we, we really need to stand up and, and to address. So, well, let me tell you what I see as a business owner looking yeah. at it. So as a mom and as a human being, it's devastating as a business owner. I see 10 or 20 years of a complete and total That's lack right. of economic opportunity because the reality is there is no rural Renaissance when we don't invest in public schools. And when there's no healthcare available, business owners aren't just going to put jobs in these places where their folks have to drive an hour and a half to get to a hospital, have a baby. Not going to happen. And there, there are 1.9 million people in Georgia that are living at or below poverty. And, that's and without health insurance. Poverty. Yeah, without health insurance. I want to stick with health care. Yeah. So my dad was a health care executive. So I have probably way too much wonky background myself with health care. So one of the things that I've noticed is that let's say you're a couple and you're working two jobs, you know, because it's hard just to have one person in the household working nowadays. So you have deductibles. So essentially they're like, hey, your company, what you do, which is great, is like, guess what? The whole family can be on the plan. Most companies, though, it's not the case anymore. If that person has insurance available to them, they have to get that plan at their employer. And then it creates a two-tier system because not only are you paying separate premiums, most people don't realize that that's two separate deductibles that people have to meet. So that instead of having like an all-encompassing family deductible, if let's say mom's working at one place, she has her own plan. She has to reach that deductible. Let's say dad's at the other place and whomever has the kids on the plan, there's so much additional cost now, including the fact that the deductibles are sky high, the out-of-cost, you know, out-of-pocket costs are astronomical. What are, you know, politicians don't want to give real answers. What are solutions? How are we supposed to deal with this? Yeah. So first of all, uh, thank you because I'm not a politician, so I can give you all kinds of answers. Uh, I, I've been called many things in this race, but uh, hopefully politicians, not one of them, <laughs> not yet anyway. Um, for me, I think it's not only fixable. There are a number of ways we can attack this problem. Um, first and foremost in Georgia, we have to expand Medicaid. And I know the Georgia chamber of commerce now is looking at Medicaid waivers, which is sort of like you know, a spin on that. I call it Republican speak for Medicaid expansion. I honestly no. don't care what we call it or <laughs> how it happens. It. There are half a million Georgians, half a million, who can have access to health insurance if we expand Medicaid. In addition to the 56,000 jobs it creates and the $3 billion a year of our own tax money we've already paid That's right, that right. can come right, right back here to Georgia to make sure I never need, meet another woman like that who gives me that story, make sure I never meet another Faye who I met down in Glynn County on St. Simons who spent 18 months arguing with her insurance company instead of getting treatment for her cancer. That is what Medicaid expansion is. And yes, we can afford it. 
But the way to look at it is it's like Georgia's rural health care in particular is a patient on the ER table. That's right. And we have a carotid artery that is bleeding out. So the first thing we've got to do is sew that up. Before we can diagnose any other injuries or maladies, we got to stop the bleeding, the hemorrhaging. And that, for me, is Medicaid expansion in some fashion or other. Um, however we get there, we've got to do this to bring our own money back here. And look, the Affordable Care Act was never intended to have a system where Medicaid wasn't expanded to those people who now fall in the Medicaid coverage gap. Uh, that was something that the Supreme Court did that altered the law that the federal legislature then never went back in That's and right. retooled um, because they're not very capable of doing much of anything these no. days, it seems like, apart from an occasional large tax cut for wealthy folks. <laughs> Um, so we've got to expand Medicaid, but then I do think we need to look at expanding the use of nurse practitioners. We need to look at, um, the use of telemedicine, by the way, telemedicine is real hard if you don't have broadband. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so our, our health insurance plan is, so this is really, this is very important because teledoc, we have one, uh, he, this morning he goes to school, he's getting ready to go. He's like, my ear still hurts. And I'm like, I don't think I can get you into the doctor you know, today based on the scheduling. But I'm like, when you come home, we're going to log in and you're going to get the teledoc. And I don't think people realize like that helps bend the cost curve mm -hmm. because it, you're getting an actual doctor and it's kind of like, and you're not going to an ER at midnight right. tonight when he's really hurting. Cause all parents, I mean, right. look, we've all been there, right. Yes. Yes. And those dreaded ER trips in the middle of the night. Um, I feel like we lived there a couple of years with our kids, but, but yeah, you can bend the cost curve, but you've also got to have an insurance commissioner in somebody like That's Janice right. Laws who actually thinks it's their job to advocate for the consumer. Right. And, um, we've got to bring in more competition. Uh, we've got to be able to get, uh, employers incentivized for more folks to do what I did. And look, guys, again, I'm not I'm not some crazy socialist leftist. <laughs> I am literally a Ronald Reagan Republican who's become a Democrat yeah, yeah. and um, and a business owner. Harvard MBA. One of my favorite books is Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. <laughs> On paper, I am every soccer mom, every Republican candidate has ever recruited in any election <laughs> in the last 20 years. Right. I'm, I know this stuff can happen and we can do it without handicapping our economy. And in fact, I would argue if we don't make some of these investments, there are parts of Georgia where there will be stagnant economic growth and a lack of jobs for a generation. So we've got to have, we've got to have folks that actually want to get in there and do the work. And that means working with people sometimes who don't agree with you on every issue. And I, th I think the unique thing, you know, both Eric and I live in Forsyth County, Georgia. And, you know, I would argue that we are in conservative country where we, we are. are. Right. Yes, <laughs> we are. Style. You're in my opponent's uh, home county. as we I are. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's right. I'm, I, you know, I, I, we, we, we are, uh, you know, our former state senator, Michael Williams. So obviously there's a there's a whole lot far right going on out here. But what I wanted to bring up was more so along the lines of your background, because, you know, here it is, you're, you are openly and excitingly talking about your background as a Republican, which I think is great that you embrace it because whether folks want to jokingly say you're a recovering Republican or you're a reformed Democrat or whatever the case <laughs> may be, my father who passed away in 2008 never got a chance to vote for President Obama. But my father, one of the last conversations we ever had about I think this was a month or two before uh, Sarah Palin was asked to be the nominee, which I think once my dad knew that, then no brainer. But, um, you know, my dad admired John McCain. 
And John McCain, who the country recently lost, regardless of his flaws, we all have flaws, but John McCain, uh, one thing my dad said was that he felt that if you would serve this country, um, you should have, I mean, if you want to be president, you should have served the country. That was just a principle and a philosophy from a generation my father came from. And he was a moderate guy. You know, my, my, my father was a guy that, you know, supported a lot of moderate candidates. He was a, a, a army guy. So he believed in a lot of things that obviously me, as I grew up, I may have thought a little bit differently. How has what, what you're saying, because I think uniquely in a state like Georgia, which has been red for almost two decades, um, you have done a phenomenal job in showing people how you can not necessarily, you know, I don't think in any way, shape or form you're compromising. You know, I think that you have found the common ground we so desperately need because you understand both worlds. You understand what it means to be a person of faith and you also understand what it means to allow someone to be themselves and have the same opportunities, the same rights, the same uh, benefits for their children and families. So my question to you is, being from the background and seeing the Republican side, how are you going to be able to lead in the state, whether we are able to turn over um, the gold dome or, or we, we are able to elect you and Stacey at the top of the ticket? How can your background, your experience help us to rebuild the kind of Georgia we need? Because we're going to get into the religious freedoms bill and all those other areas that I quite frankly think are doing more harm than good for our state when we bring them up. But how can your background help us to rebuild the kind of Georgia that we all want to see? I, I, first of all, thank you. And it's a great question. And what I would say is my background is uniquely and perfectly suited for this. If you think about it as a business person, I don't get the luxury of being able to refuse to work with people who disagree with me. In fact, I have 2,000 Teamsters and Machinists, and every four years we have a contract negotiation. Um, so they love me right now, but in a contract year, maybe not. Um, and so uh, my job as executive chairman of a company that is now a large logistics company, but we started with 120 employees. We're approaching 4,000 now, 10 years later. And that's growing the business through the Great Recession, through the bankruptcies of General Motors and Chrysler. Um, and, and again, as a woman in a male-dominated industry. And what I found is that it didn't matter if everybody agreed with me on everything, it mattered whether or not I was able to bring people to the table, understand their point of view, which by the way, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat means you need to give people the benefit of the, uh, the doubt. You need to not assume that they have malintentions. You need to not assume that reasonable people with good hearts and great experience in life can't disagree on an approach to a problem. But I've got to get those 2,000 union employees, you know, over 1,500 non-union, Fortune 100 clients, independent directors on our board, institutional investors and a world-class management team all rowing in the same direction. Yeah. And so if I came in and rode off half of the population just because of their political views, I'd never get anything done. So what I'm going to do is take that same common sense, common ground. I, I really don't care who you voted for in the past, guys. I'm thrilled you voted. Even if it's a candidate I vehemently disliked, I'm glad you participated. And I want you to come out and be reminded in the potential of this state to do great things when we have leaders who are more interested in problem solving than politicking. That's the approach that's going to get us common ground. And and look, that means for Democrats, we're going to have to be able to listen to people who may not see the world through our eyes. Um, and we're going to have to say, I respect that you've put a lot of thought into that. And here's where I disagree. But man, there's this other lane. I think we can work together there. That's important. 
one of the labels that de Democrats seem to always have attached to them. Oh, you see bumper stickers, I swear. There are bumper stickers out there like, um, I basically, you know, have a job. I'm not a Democrat. And I'm sitting here going, I've been a business owner for a long time. You're a business owner. There's lots of business owners that are Democrats that pay a lot of money in taxes and contribute a lot to the economy. Can you tell us for a minute, though, a little more about what your company does? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so it's funny. If you've ever seen those double-decker trucks going down the highway full of cars, that's our core business. So we started, and it was actually my parents who bought the first company in 2008, um, I've been involved since the very beginning. Anybody who grew up in a family business knows what that's like. I've been involved in my folks' businesses since I was probably 12. Um, and I started going to board meetings when I was 15. So just to put it in perspective. Um, and then in 2009, as a family, we bought a much larger company that did the same thing called Jack Cooper. It was founded in 1928. This is our 90th anniversary. And um, about a month after we bought it, GM and Chrysler declared bankruptcy. Wow. So this became the kind of brass knuckles, you know, turnaround work right. that you only usually get to read about. But I actually got to be a part of it. I got to see what it looks like to solve the unsolvable problems, to save the unsavable company, to fix the stuff that dozens and dozens of other people had tried to fix and couldn't. And, and my perspective is sometimes it's a skill set thing. And I do think I bring a unique skill set in terms of understanding capital markets, understanding turnaround management, understanding how to bring diverse coalitions of folks together from all different points of view to solve a problem. But more often than not, the handicap is actually if they believe. What do they believe in? And when we tell, we tell the story a lot, but I, my parents were like, we're all big movie buffs, my whole family, <laughs> right? And like huge film nerds. And so um, required viewing in my house included, of course, Rocky, right? Basically uh, all the Rocky what's stories. Your, what's your favorite Rocky? Oh, the original. I, I, I mean, gotta go with Rocky Four. I mean, oh that, that, that yeah, was, Dolph Lundgren and the Russians. Year, hey, yeah. strangely relevant this year, maybe. Right? Hey, there you go, <laughs> so, right? The Russia conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, wait, I have a, a Rocky thing. Okay, for years. So as I was talking to you guys earlier, I, I guess I should say this. Today's the 17th anniversary for my wife and I. Happy anniversary! Right, so I'm giving her a shout out now. We're going to get you out of here on time. So she said, "Look at me and see her crazy." No, she's got a late meeting today. So. There we go. So. We can run with that. <laughs> so, anyways, she. Forever, I was like, you got to watch Rocky. So good, so good. Got a home theater for years. No. Finally, she goes, all right, let's do it. And then it was like, okay, when are we watching the next one? When are we watching the next one? And now, you know. She's hooked, right? She's hooked. She's like, Creed 2, were there the first day? So. Yeah, see, here, here's the funny thing. So I, my kids, um, I, I did it backwards. Yeah. My kids started off with Rocky 4 because they saw me watching it. <laughs> yeah. And then they wanted to see Creed. And now they don't care about Rocky 1 through 3. They just want to see Creed 2, yeah. right? Because they, they come from another generation. My, my kids, whenever I try to show them a movie, they always try to talk about how bad the graphics are or gosh, dad, did y'all really wear socks that high and yep. shorts that short? So obviously there, there's a disconnect there, but you're, you're you know, the, the good way to, to transition um, from even that example is I wanted to ask you about two endorsements you've gotten mm -hmm. um, because I'd like to shift a little bit into race and justice, a little racial politics in the country right now because this show's focus is to really dissect democratic politics, right? To look at the inside and out, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Uh, Barack Obama and Stacey Abrams have both endorsed you. And um, that says a lot, you know, to have the endorsement of the first African-American president in the United States. 
uh, to have the endorsement of a woman that can potentially become the first black uh, elected governor in the South, not just a black woman. I know Governor Wilder was elected in Virginia, so I'll, I'll go a little further up. But in the deep South, when you talk about Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, um, a Stacey Abrams victory would be paramount. Um, to have two women at the top of that ticket means a lot. But to have their endorsements um, as, a, as a person of color, as a black man, uh, that says a lot about your character and who you are, not just because of the race that's involved in it, but because here you have these two individuals, one male, one female, one former president, another one potentially a governor, and they've said, we put our trust and confidence in Sarah. You know, what, what does that mean to you? Because I, I'd like to kind of get into the state of where we are in this country, but to see those kinds of endorsements for the caliber of candidate you are, um, how did that make you feel when you heard about it? And what does that mean for the party in this state that, in my mind, quite frankly, Georgia has been severely neglected, even though President Obama got 48 percent at one point in, in his election here in the state? What do those mean to you and, and how does that help to fuel your uh, campaign? Uh, it's a, a tremendous honor. So I actually found out about the Barack Obama endorsement on Twitter with the rest of the world. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, I should just go home. Like the day's not going to get any better than this. Um, but you know, it's funny. I, I was actually very similar to your dad in that I tremendously admired John McCain. Yeah. And uh, anyone who serves six decades for this um, this country and has such a, a lofty, uh, you know, sense of purpose and is able to put the ideals of the country above his own partisan affiliation, I think it's a real loss to the country. So for me, you know, Barack Obama is part of the reason I became a Democrat. Um, he, I think his ability, and what I loved about it was his ability to lead on principle, and even when those principles weren't popular, yeah. hold yeah. fast. That, guys, that's the test of a leader. You don't have to agree with them for everything. But what you need to know is that a leader says what they mean and means what they say and that you never have to doubt the content of their character. And so to get an endorsement from somebody who showed me, and again, in the early days, I would say I didn't agree with him on a lot of policies or yeah. maybe, you know, maybe not a lot, but at least here and there. But what I, I loved all, I is... I think we all had our, you know, I'm, I, I'm saying this not to interrupt, but... You know, I'm, I'm a black man that, that uh, you know, willingly and excitedly supported and voted for him. But there were issues. That I think, you know, we, we were all in this somewhat love affair. And I don't think you should, I don't think any candidate is perfect one. Exactly. But at the same time, there are areas that I think even President Obama wished he would have done things a little differently. So I don't think any of us should be apologetic about whether we criticized President Obama or, you know, he had flaws. The fact is that, you know, he did a lot for the country and he'll probably go down as one of our best presidents. Well, and I think it's, you know, and again, for me, suffering from true believerism, it was somebody who was willing to be exactly who they were yeah. unapologetically. Yes, that's right. And, and guys, it's hard. It's hard. In the primary, I could have made my life a lot easier by tacking to the left, by adopting language that isn't authentic to who I am, by taking the word evangelical out of my vocabulary, by never saying the term Harvard ever, um, <laughs> you, you know, or suburban. I think I actually got in trouble for answering a polling question once because in the primary, somebody asked me about the polling. And I said, it's really weird. I poll really well with suburban white women. Terrible thing to say. I didn't know. <laughs> this is what happens when you're a first time candidate. I actually thought it was a real demographic question and being an analytic by nature, 
I answered it the way the math would tell you. Um, and so, you know, for me, what I'm proud of is even in the face of lear- being on a very steep learning curve and even in the face of making mistakes, there's not a person who's known me for 30 years. And my girlfriends who I've literally known since I was six, eight years old, we're all here in September, right before we launched. There's not a one of them that'll tell you I'm any different in how I talk to you than how I've talked to them for three decades. So what I loved about Barack Obama was his ability to be exactly who he is and then tell people, get to know me and, and hear my heart, see my ability to consistently live by my values and to prioritize my family. And oh, by the way, I'm going to kick some serious butt on like getting stuff done, like in the background, all of that be effective. So yeah, I mean, that's a huge honor. It obviously helped raise prior uh, visibility for the campaign. And Stacy, you know, what I love about her is she's sort of like me in the sense that she's a policy wonk, right? I mean, even maybe even more so because she's been doing this for a living for a while. And so I love that she's pragmatic. She's a problem solver. Um, I love that my girls are never going to think it's weird for women to be at the top of the ticket. I love it. I love that they grew up in a world, they were born into a world where Barack Obama was president, and now they may go to elementary school with Stacey Abrams as governor, so they're not going to... I love it. Yeah, I mean, like, we all talk about wanting sort of a, you know, not colorblind, but we want to believe we live in this world where what we look like or who we love or how or if we pray or... Or what our last name is. Yes, that that doesn't determine our outcomes, but until we see people like Barack Obama or Stacey Abrams or in the business world, you know, once upon a time it was a Meg Whitman, right? And she's a Republican, but seeing those people at the top of their game, that's the world I want my girls to grow up in. And the reason why I asked just to be very intentional about it is because black folks vote 94% Democrat. And the, the honest to God truth is that to be fiercely loyal to a party that at times hasn't been as loyal um, back. And, and I'm just going to be honest, you know, I think all of us who are here today, we're all married, right? And I think we would all agree that the same love and commitment and, and, and you know, sacrifice we give to our spouse, we would hope is reciprocated, right? Because I don't think any of us would be where we are if we didn't have the support that our spouse had given us, because I know at least for me and my house, shout out to my wife, by the way. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's important. And the reason why I said is because black families in this country for so long have not only uh, fought for equality and fought for justice. Um, too often we focus on Dr. King and we focus on uh, 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 Rosa Parks sitting on the bus, but we have this period of time where we felt that after civil rights we had arrived and that we made it and we left our communities and a lot went unchecked and the reason why I brought up Barack Obama and Stacey Abrams is because Barack Obama being the first black president and having record numbers of African Americans come out and vote and then Stacey Abrams being a woman that represents a population within our society, not just black women in general, but the fact that Stacey Abrams represents a demographic of women that are smart, highly educated, just phenomenal and that goes for women across the board. However, black women in this country for so long, it seems like it has been disenfranchised. And when you look at the Me Too movement, you look at this being the year of the women, uh, the year of the woman, um, what makes me proud um, is that not only do we have women of your caliber and Stacey's on the ticket, but the fact that I'm hearing so many black women that are saying I'm supporting Sarah Amico. The question I have for you as it relates to like race and, and justice is, you spoke a little bit earlier about Ferguson, about you know your family interactions there, and I'd like you to touch on that because 
What we saw with President Obama was obviously this shift where our country felt like, wow, you know, we, we voted for a black president. But then we saw Trayvon Martin. We saw Mike Brown. We, we're, we're, we're still seeing Colin Kaepernick. Seeing Charlottesville. We're seeing Charlottesville, right? And mm-hmm. Heather Hare, who was a white woman, who said that, you know, um, she said that if you're not, um, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention, right? Talk to me a little bit about how what you've seen this country endure from Obama through Trump and 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 how, you know, your candidacy. And I, I'm not trying to put you in a position to, you know, be the, the cultural authority. I'm more so just asking in the time that we're in, how important is it for your candidacy and Stacey's candidacy as it relates to how we're treating one another, not just from a racial standpoint, but from justice and equality as a whole? Yeah. So. Um, the first thing I would say is, uh, I, I am a white woman mm-hmm. and as such, I feel like I have to be very careful about, um, how I talk through these issues because I think it's really important for people who look like me, for those of you who are listening that haven't lived as a person of color, I want you to understand that we are an important part of what the solution needs to be here. We have to recognize where we haven't seen bias when it existed. We have to understand that deep-seated institutional bias, whether that's in governments or police departments potentially, not everywhere, but sometimes, or whether that's in the business community where I am. You know, when I came into my company, uh, was really well run by guys who'd been around forever, but every one of them looked the same. Yeah. And, and almost all in the same demographics, right? Maybe 45 to 65 white Protestant guy from the Midwest almost, almost exclusively. And now... Uh, and our board was the same. I was the first woman. Um, uh, when I became chairman, I added another woman. I, she happens to be African-American. We did yeah. not add her because of what she looked like. We added her because she is freaking phenomenal <laughs> at <you>. her job. <laughs> and uh, and she's made us better. That's good. And our business units now are run by a Mexican-American man, um, an African-American man, uh, an immigrant, and one white guy. Um, and so I'm actually pretty proud of how much we've worked to diversify. We've be. promoted women, but it's also made the company better. Right. I mean, our profits have gone up. Our decision processes are more thoughtful. And what it tells me is that representation matters, not just because we want all children to aspire to their highest potential, no matter what they look like or what church or house of worship they go to or who their parents are. We want to have the best outcomes. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is if we're not representative of the people we govern, by definition, we can't have optimal governance outcomes. Um, But for, for, you know, communities that haven't lived like this, I had a a real wake up moment in our family because of my cousin. That's right. Um, I think you shared the story earlier. Yeah. So I was born in St. Louis. Um, I still have a lot of family in Florissant, which is where I lived when I was born. It's uh, North County, St. Louis, not too far from Ferguson, back kind of down the street. And my cousin, Kara, married um, a statuesque black man from the Bronx. I mean, and they're like the most fun couple. Um, He's super quiet, IT guy. (laughs) And then I remember at their wedding, like, they turned on the music and I was like, he's a big dude too. I'm like, he can boogie. Like, they're just, yeah, and they're funny and they're like pop culture savvy and they're witty and they have kind of this great repartee between the two of them. And they have two little boys and I have two little girls and they're all about the same age. So, and we grew up together, my cousins and I. So, but what's shocking is when the Michael Brown protests were happening, when that whole just devastating chapter unfolded near where my family was from, 
Um, we all realized my cousins were going to, she was going to have different conversations with her kids than I would have with mine. And guys, I know that sounds trite probably, but I mean it so sincerely. Any world that my kids inherit where my cousin's sons have to fear things my daughters don't simply because of the color of their skin, we're not done yet. That's right. We're not done with the work from Dr. King. We're not done with the work from Lincoln. Hmm. We got we got a lot of work to do. And as a mom, you know, obviously I can't speak to what it would be as an African-American mom. And that's why, I mean, I have to be, yeah. I want to be deeply sympathetic on this but and careful about how I say it. But as a mom, having to worry about your kid getting a traffic ticket. I mean, we all did it. I, I like, I remember getting my first one in your quads, like, right. They burn because they're nervous when they're pulling you over and, um, you know, going to the waffle house or Starbucks, like any mom who has to worry about the safety of their child because of what they look like. Or again, it, what if your child is transgender Yeah. or, you know, on the LGBTQIA somewhere in there, this, then our work's not done. America's not complete. Yeah, and we have to be we have to be willing to have these conversations. I have three black boys in Forsyth County, Georgia. Uh, Forsyth County has come a long way from where it was a hundred years ago. I mean, hell, it's come a long way from thirty years ago. But um, it's very true that there are disparities in in how we're raising and uh, bring up our kids. Matter of fact. There, there's a scripture I think you, you would appreciate in the Bible that says, tramp your child in the way they should go, and in the end mm, they shall not they depart. They will not depart. It. And, you know, I, it's, it's, it's a challenge because living in the United States, let alone the county, um, you know, there have been those conversations I've had with my kids. And, you know, it's, it's not something that you wear as a badge, but it is something that you say, hey, you know, uh, and, and Eric and I have had this conversation. Yeah. But, you know, for me, it's, you know, Frederick Douglass, I have this quote in my office. He said, it's better to raise strong boys than to repair broken men. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's true for children in general. If we raise our children to be strong and to understand the differences and to not sugarcoat the realities that life may pose to us, I think if we raise them the right way, um, then they will go in a new direction. And, and I think it's important for us to understand that because, you know, our, our children are open messages to a future we won't see. And I will say this. It's not just important for your kids yeah. that those conversations happen. Let me tell you about the conversations in our house. Um, because, again, I can't live an experience I haven't had but I can promise to do everything in my power to listen to yeah. anyone who wants to share their experience with me. I can promise to change and to help lead change where we need it and to speak to people when something needs to be said, even if it's not popular. But the conversations we're having with my kids are different because of the universe they're growing up in, the yeah. world they're in. We read Ruth Bader Ginsburg's oh. I Dissent, the, sto the children's <laughs> yeah. book story. Uh, my five-year-old loves it, by the way. She runs around, I dissent, and I disagree, <laughs> but I think she just likes to say that anyway. But we read about it, and even though they're five and seven, when they say they were not allowed to stay in certain hotels because they were Jewish, my kids and I talk about that. And we talk about the fact that's the same Hebrew people that we read in your Bible. Mm -hmm. And that God created all of us in his image and racism is more offensive to him than almost anything. And so we read that. We read the who was Rosa Parks. And when mommy, when I got to go up and sit in that bus in her seat in Dearborn in the museum at the Ford Innovation Museum, I sobbed. I don't know how you can do anything but that. I mean, they've got her voice piped in and telling you the story. 
And I sat there, but I didn't just have that moment for me or for social media or anything like that. I came home and told my kids and I showed them the pictures. And I said, do you remember when you read that book and what she did and what this means? So we have that conversation. We read Martin Luther King Jr. My daughter, when she met John Lewis, um, Congressman John Lewis at the March for Our Lives, Sophia, she knew exactly who he was. And she knew exactly what he stood for. And she understood he was a part of the museum where we were standing in to start the march. And so even though they're not going to have the same experiences your son does, it won't be um, that we haven't had conversations about why that matters. And I know they're five and seven. And I know there's probably parents listening like, oh, my gosh, that's kind of early. No, it's not. No. As soon as they can talk, guys. You start introducing these concepts that we can love people who are different, that we do not need to fear other, whatever that is. We're Americans and human beings first. And um, that's what I would say. I think the problem with the Republican Party in Georgia is you got somebody like Michael Williams, Mm -hmm. right, who thinks it's scarier what somebody looks like or that they go to a mosque instead of a church than it is to drive a deportation bus around the state running for governor. If you go to Gwinnett down Pleasant Hill Road, there are so many grocery stores from with stuff from all around the world. China, South Korea. It's Japan. awesome. It's I love going awesome. to dim sum over there. It's so awesome. I haven't been. Sweet oh, we got to go. Oh, we, we're going to do it. Yeah, you guys heard Sarah invite me, so we're going yeah. to Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love it. <laughs> Have you been to Sweet Hut Bakery? No, I haven't. But somebody just gave me a mochi from there the yeah. other day, one of the coconut ones, yeah. and it was tear-inducing. It was like the best I've had <laughs> since so I was good. in Japan. And it was fabulous. So, so let, let's let's go to something because you just were talking about Michael Williams. So we'll go somewhere a little more controversial. It's nothing that you did, but hopefully not. No, <laughs> not that we know, but your opponent. Oh, yeah. So for those who aren't aware, we're in Forsyth County, as we've talked about, and and your opponent, uh, Mr. Who shall remain unnamed. Right. Notice I haven't said his <laughs> name. Why give him any publicity? <laughs> so um, this individual, you had a fundraiser in Beverly Hills, I believe. And I don't think we've got to a little more of your background. You happen to used to work there. I did. Okay. It was former colleagues. And by the way, a bunch of them are Republicans. So, <laughs> so irony's not lost on me. So this unnamed opponent, he's a former minor league baseball player. So I would guess that he you know, was in the Florida Marlins organization and people out of state wanted to have a fundraiser for him, his old colleagues. It seemed pretty rational that he go, oh, that's great, you want to support me. But they decided to do the same old dirty nonsense that I think people are tired of. You know, I think that's the, the heart of, of how you feel, that it's the same dog and pony show, it's the same nonsense, people want realistic stuff. Let me read the campaign spokesman for the unnamed campaign. The Hollywood set is an extreme left-wing hot mess and they are trying to export their awfulness to Georgia. That's the first part. But here's the second part. That's real friendly for the movie industry that's the third in the world in Georgia. That's right. Nine and a half billion dollars of economic impact, by the way, in Georgia. It's the second part. Did Amico come home from California in an electric car spilling used needles, Mexican gang members, and contraband drinking straws into the streets of Marietta? I won't, it says his name, but I will. Won't say his name again. <laughs> Feces littered cities, high taxes, and Nancy Pelosi values are a tough sell in Georgia, no matter how much Hollywood money you have. Okay, first of all, it's vulgar. The second thing is, you've put out a fantastic statement, and 
this individual references electric cars. My wife and I have owned an electric car for four years. We are, I guess, EV nerds and enthusiasts, okay? Electric cars have a great future. The Georgia legislature actually killed the uh, tax incentive that had this, this business growing significantly. We had an electric char uh, car charger put in our home. And this was, so this is like, for people who don't know, you can plug in an electric car to a regular outlet, or you can get a, you know, a faster, a level two. This guy comes and he goes, yeah, our business has been killed because they killed the tax incentive. And it was just essentially done out of spite and probably who knows what money, you know, from big oil was back there. So to your opponent, what, explain to us how this type of nonsense makes you feel about what type of campaign they're running. You know, I think this is part of the reason that people are tired of politicians. Uh, this guy's been in the state legislature for the better part of a decade, even though he calls himself an outsider, right. <laughs> which I've always thought was kind of funny as an actual outsider. <laughs> yeah. Um, the funny thing is, is I'm pretty sure when they issued this statement, he was in Washington, D.C., by the way, on his Twitter feed, it was him doing a video standing in front of the U.S. Capitol. <laughs> so the irony was also not lost on me. Um, but I think this is exactly what drives voters away from the polls right now. And you almost have to wonder, is that why they do it? Because it becomes one of these things where that's not leadership. This is the kind of petty partisan politicking that makes people throw up their hands and say, I'm done with all of you politicians. And it's not fair because there's plenty of people out there like a Stacey Abrams who want to do the work and who actually want to get the job done and deliver results. And they get a bad name because of guys like this who issue these kind of statements. But as an outsider, like an actual outsider and first time candidate, what it makes me think is that there's a huge opening for us to talk to voters who are tired of this stuff. Guys, he's insulting. First of all, the guy, one of the hosts that threw this event for me is a still a Trump supporter Republican. There were other Republicans there. There's a mix of folks. These are former colleagues. I'm honored that they would take time out of their day to help me do something across the country in Georgia. And, um, and so I don't see anything wrong with raising money out there, first of all. And more than half of our money has come from in-state. But I'm also a first-time candidate. Um, so I've got to raise money wherever I can. It's sure. very expensive to run a statewide campaign. Um, he's insulting the film and television industry. That is a $10 billion industry in Georgia. It, um, in fact, when Nathan Deal opened his State of the State speech this January, um, the very first industry he talked about was, was film the film industry, and television right. industry and what great jobs it creates in the state of Georgia. I think the average salary is in the $80,000 range. And so it is enormously foolish for any candidate from any party to insult that industry. We should be trying to grow it and really dominate the East Coast for film and television production. On the production. front page of our newspaper here in Forsyth County, it says Focalwood. Forsyth County embracing Hollywood because what Hollywood and the film industry has done for our, our community. So you're They're not going to feel, but you know, the other thing that's underestimated automotive here in Georgia is a $2.8 billion industry. Oh, didn't know that. It is. And in fact, um, Kia, which manufactures here in the state of Georgia, in South Georgia right? that's right. And very precious jobs down there. That's right. Um, they have announced a broad, aggressive investment in electric vehicles. Volvo, yes. which you probably already know, yes. um, has decided to go completely to hybrid or electric vehicles, I think in the next decade. General Motors yeah. CEO Mary Barra 
um, has offered, has put out a vision for no emissions future. Um, Mr. Hackett, the CEO at Ford, has been talking about propulsion, not just electrification of vehicles, but potentially other non-fossil fuel-based propulsion methods for the vehicles of the future. Um, in fact, this is something that can bring not just jobs to Georgia and economic growth and tax revenue to fund things like our public schools and our health care, our infrastructure. Especially to some of these struggling counties that need about. it. Yeah. But it can bring the kind of jobs that are going to last for 20 years. Right. So this is this is not only childish and juvenile and oh so typical right. for a candidate who can't run on the strength of his ideas. So he has to resort to these kind of negative ad hoc, or I'm sorry, ad hominem attacks. Um, and voters, the great news is you don't have to take it. You can choose a candidate who thinks this is an okay style of leadership, or you can give me four years to show you that I will lead for everyone, not just the people who agree with me, not just the people who voted for me. And that kind of rhetoric will not come out of my campaign, or they won't be with the campaign anymore. No. Oh, well, go ahead, Eric. No, I just wanted to follow up because it segues into green jobs. Absolutely. The, the green job economy, that, that is not only is it good for the planet, there, as a business owner, you know, there's a lot of money to be made there, the net benefit. So we're talking about EVs, cars of the state, weatherization of homes. There's so many different solar installations. Top solar. When I was up in Connecticut and Massachusetts a couple months ago, so you think New England, and it does, it's not sunny a lot there. Solar installations in Massachusetts, all over the place on all these houses. And you go, they can have all the houses powered by solar. And then you look here, like in our neighborhood, we have like 225 houses in our neighborhood. There's one house that has solar. Great for them, but you're like, why isn't that everywhere? There's such a benefit economically and, you know, for the planet. Well, but it will be. Uh, and so one more thing on the statement before yes. we move on, though. The last thing I'm going to point out, and, and again, we have an opioid crisis in the state. Like much of the rest of the country, thousands of families here are dealing with addiction and loss. For a staffer, for anyone who wants a leadership position in the state, let alone the number two in state government, to make light of that issue with this needles joke right. is really disturbing, guys. It, not, it's, not to mention that this county alone, Forsyth County, we have a drug awareness council. We are one of the leading counties in the state of Georgia for the opioid crisis. Yeah, it, there should have been an apology issued for the statement. Um, this, this was not... Uh, this wasn't kind. It's offensive to me as a believer that a guy who goes around talking about his faith, his Christian faith, lets somebody who works for him put this kind of rhetoric out there. Um, but that's deeply hurtful to those families. It, there's almost just no excuse for it. That's not a partisan thing, guys. I would say that as a private citizen not running for office, I wouldn't vote for this guy. Yeah. Um, right. and, and so at any rate, last thing I'll say on that, but when it comes to green jobs, it's so we are very fortunate. Our business has three business units. We've got that core transportation of vehicles. We now move between 3.6 and 4.1 million vehicles in North America a year. Okay. We have an asset light division that deals in apps and technologies like deep neural networks and artificial intelligence and how that can be used to reduce wear and tear on the roads and emissions by optimizing logistics networks, which is super cool. My internet also gets really <laughs> happy there. Um, but we have a third division, which are sort of diversified adjacent businesses, one of which actually manufactures some components for Tesla for their electric vehicles. Okay. 
Um, but the application of that technology is smart glass. It can be solar panel inverter boxes. Um, it has this incredible power walls. If you think about smart grids, microgrids, battery storage, the future is super bright on these technologies. They are high margin, profitable businesses. They are great paying jobs. And in addition to that, I would say, again, think about jobs that won't just last for an election cycle. We, we've got to get our politicians thinking about longer term growth. These are the kind of jobs that can build a 21st century economy. So I see a lot of politicians, what they do now, they're akin to a corporation where they're only looking a quarter, quarter to ahead, quarter. quarter to quarter. Instead of having a five or 10 year vision, they're like, well, my annual bonus is tied to the performance yeah. over the next couple quarters. So I think there's an analogy. But it doesn't have to be that way. So, no. so this and it's funny because you guys don't know the story. So this is not a softball. <laughs> but um, but in our business, we have two primary business strategies. But the first one is the Zoe strategy. Zoe's my niece. She's the oldest in the third generation of kids who are owners. And there are three generations of us that own stock in our business. It's a family company. Zoe is nine. When Zoe's in the workforce 20 years from now, we want to know what every decision we make today looks like in the Zoe horizon 20 years from now. And when you do that, you make very different decisions, right. like paying for everybody's health insurance or, or standing up for your union. Right. It, it might. And electrification will do so long before. Yeah. Yeah. And so we, we think about those 10 and 20 year time horizons. And the reason government doesn't is exactly what you said. People are worried about their next election. That's right. I'm going to assume if I do my job and do it well and lay the foundations for long-term growth, y'all are going to vote for me again anyway because I did a good job. Not because I pandered to this interest group or that interest group or this industry or that industry. But I think we can make, I believe the future economy is green and that it's profitable and that those two things are not in conflict. And there, you know, there's going to be some transition, right? Yeah. But we can have both. We can have a portfolio right now um, that includes fossil fuels. It can also include solar and wind and hydro and nuclear, right, at Plant Vogel. So I think we do need to look at um, how do we claim as much of the economy that we believe will be here 10 or 20 years from now yeah. for Georgia as possible. And that's got to include some of these green technologies. The other thing is, since you're a, uh, an electric car guy, I got to <laughs> say this, you got to go read this Wired article from a few months ago. They also think electric cars might be part of what saves our aging grid. Because if you think about it, you charge up your car overnight, right? And then yeah. you drive it to work and then you park in the parking lot. It's essentially a sitting battery, right? Because you've stored up this charge. So there's this great article in Wired about how you could actually help even out the spikes in wow. surges in the grid by plugging the EVs back into the grid while you're sitting in your office and helping them manage as peak capacity moments. So it's fascinating that sometimes these technologies actually solve much older problems. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say I'm going to walk out because I read the article. Oh, my God. It was so great, right? Oh, well, it make, make me hopeful for the future. So in, in our last 15-minute stretch that we have with you, um, I do want to get into some of the weeds of the grassroots side and some of the folks on the ground that are, you know, in some of our accounts around the state. But you mentioned Vogel. Um, Vogel is a project which I think on both sides, because Democrats and Republicans both voted in 2009 for a lot of it, but it's billions over budget right now. It's it's way beyond schedule. 
what can we do to try and fix and rectify some of that? Because Georgia Power has, you know, or due to some pressure, you know, looked at some solar options. They have an integrated resources plan that they've released in 2013. They'll be releasing another one uh, next year, but they, they, they have moved the needle, even though I think it's not been at a, at a fast enough pace. What can we do? Um, really quick, short answer to address the Vogel issue that's costing our state so much. How can we work with the legislature to try and reverse some of the, the, the harms that we face as, as a result of it? So not only Georgia Power, but I actually think the EMCs who are more than doubling their solar capacity that'll come online by, I think, the year 2021. I actually think our, our power companies are really starting to make those smart investments in the technologies and energy of the future, but they also understand they need a portfolio to manage rates and price and capacity. Um, so I think they're doing the right thing. They're trying to get there. And, and big companies, it's like steering a cruise ship, not a speedboat, right? Yeah. So you've you got to give them a little bit <laughs> of grace. Yeah, you got to give them a little bit of grace as they get there. But what I will say on Vogel is this. It is 7,500 jobs, y'all. And a lot of those are craft jobs, union jobs. These are good jobs that are giving people access to socioeconomic mobility, access to the American dream. And we've sort of gone past the point of no return in my point of view. So we've got to make it work. We got to make it safe. We got to make it work. And I think 20 years from now, when you're producing capacity there at very cheap rates, it'll be a huge boon to the growth in the state and the energy rates that we pay. Um, having said that, they had a supplier, essentially, an engineering firm that went bankrupt during the construction of it. So most people don't understand why there were cost overruns. They had a supplier that went bankrupt. As I understand it, they had estimates um, as opposed to firm budgets and projections. And they had to go back and essentially start over. And as somebody who's bought a business that was in a bankruptcy proceeding and had to go back in and rework their contracts, part of what you have to do sometimes is increase the prices. There's a reason they were in bankruptcy, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, they weren't making a profit. And so when they, what they did this time in the most recent announcement about the cost overruns, I thought was actually very admirable. They had large cost overruns, more than I think $1.1 billion for Georgia Power's part. And it's, they own about, I think, half of it maybe. So it's probably a $2 billion liability. Um, but for those overruns, they've agreed to write it off. They took responsibility. They did the hard work this time of getting hopefully what are firmer product, uh, projections financially on the cost. And they had to go out and rebid the partners. And so, you know, it's not optimal. And I'm, I'm sympathetic because I do think consumers have absorbed too many of these charges for too long without getting the benefit of it yet. Right. But I, I give them props for how they've gone in and tried to right the ship. I think they're trying to do the right thing. They, you know, they took it on the chin on these overruns and they've come up with a plan to manage it going forward in a way that I think is much more responsible and will be much more um, accountable to the yeah. consumers. Well, we're, we're going to definitely have a show that focuses on energy in Georgia. I, I think that unfortunately ratepayers have taken more of the, the worst end of, of the stick, but Keeping to, to where we are and, and to the leadership that you're going to provide when you become lieutenant governor. I'm going to go ahead and just say it now oh, because you. we're, we're going to do our part. But um, so I'm going to back up a little bit. 2016, and, and here's how I want us to kind of bring this thing to a close, repairing what has been broken. 2016, we saw a very divisive campaign, which I think was a rebuttal against both Democrats and Republicans. You had almost, what, 16 candidates running on the Republican yeah. side. Uh, and, and you saw a, refer a referendum against 
uh, Republican conservative politics with the election of Donald Trump. Now, regardless, you know, I spoke to Van Jones uh, about a month or two after uh, the election. He had gone out to West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky and a lot of these areas that in 1950, which uh, I mean, not 1950, but 50 years ago in 1968. Um, and I bought this up with Jason Carter, uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, about two months before he was assassinated, uh, went to Eastern Kentucky and he went up to the poorest part of Appalachia. And he was there and it was a democratic area. It was democratic country. And we forgot about him. We forgot about the coal miners. We forgot about the folks that, you know, to the green jobs point, Eric, these folks never got a chance to, you know, reposition their skill set for jobs of the future. So as coal, for instance, um, as we move away from fossil fuels and into renewables, these, you know, communities, uh, whether it's a victim of neglect or they just, quite frankly, weren't given the investments, we saw this transition. In 2016, um, on the Democratic side, we saw this stance for a seemingly uh, clear shot for Hillary Clinton to become president of the United States. Uh, before you and Stacey were running, there was a lady named Hillary, and she was out there running, <laughs> but she didn't win. Um, and what I wanna ask you is not so much about her not winning, but about the the rift that has now been seen in the Democratic Party between, uh, you know, establishment Democrats that have trusted and been faithful and loyal to the Clintons versus looking now at progressives. I was Bernie Sanders' uh, campaign, uh, I mean, political director in Georgia. Um, I believe in a lot of things that, that Bernie put out there as it relates to income inequality and as it relates to jobs and uh, equal pay for women. And, and so I supported his candidacy. But when we got our butts kicked in the primary, um, I went and did what I thought was the right thing, was to support Hillary to become president of the United States. But as a result, we now see, if you look at these elections in, in Connecticut and in Massachusetts and even in the South with Stacey Abrams, we're starting to see this shift in progressive thought. What are your thoughts from a grassroots standpoint as to this shift that we're seeing? We're, we're seeing young people more engaged. We're seeing more women running. We're seeing activists become candidates the same way how your background is in business. We're seeing folks that have been activists their whole life that are saying, hey, I'm running for city council. We saw it in Athens, Georgia. We're seeing it um, all over our state. And I want to just kind of hear your perspective of the direction we're going in now. Is there an opportunity for recovery? And how do we put the pieces back together that have since been fragmented since 2016? Yeah, I think if you want to look at the future of the Democratic Party, look at the statewide candidates in Georgia, starting with Stacey and I. Uh, what divide? We, you know, I think we're building a coalition that's not just the Hillary and Bernie folks, but independents yeah. and voters who have traditionally been Republican, um, whether that's suburban professionals, whether that's the, the perennial white whale we're looking for, the, the soccer moms, yeah. right, or security moms, depending on the election cycle, we always get a different <laughs> name. I say we because I'm probably in that set. Um, but we are building a coalition of voters, including folks that haven't felt like they had any reason to show up at the ballot box for a very, very long time. And if you think about it, I don't see that divide on our ticket here in Georgia. Stacy is an accomplished legislator, um, a Yale-educated tax attorney. She is uh, a resident of the city of Atlanta. Um, she is a daughter of the South. And I think she brings, and by the way, she's single and with no kids, right? Yeah. I am a suburban evangelical Harvard MBA, Ayn Rand leading, reading <laughs> business owner. 
um, with two little kids and a husband who still talks a little funny because I think English is like his third or fourth language. <laughs> um, and I think if you want to look at bridging the divides, look no further than our ticket. I, I don't see any divide. We come at the world. I'm a, a girl who grew up in the Midwest in yeah. those arcs, but I have had the tremendous good fortune to live in the Northeast for a few years, to live on the West Coast for a few years, to live in Virginia for four years for college, um, and to make a couple of stops in Europe along the way. And so I, I've seen that divide you're talking about, not just within the Democratic Party. I've seen the red and blue divide for decades, and I've been talking about it for decades before people in the media were because I've lived it. Yeah. When I was at home in the Ozarks, I was always too liberal for the politics, right? Yeah. And when I went up to the Northeast for a few years after graduate school, I was the crazy Christian conservative, <laughs> right? And, and again, my views haven't changed. <laughs> when I lived on the West Coast, I was probably a registered Republican. It, it just, you know, I... I think those divides sometimes are a product more of media and marketing than they are of substance and policy. Yeah. And so look at the ticket of Georgia. We are finding a way to bring all of those groups of people together to say, we don't need to agree on everything. Mike Thurman, the CEO of DeKalb, gave a great speech at the NAACP Unity Breakfast this year. And he said, unity isn't unanimity. We don't have to agree on everything to be unified in our approach, to understand we're fighting for exactly the right things at exactly the right moment for exactly the right reasons. That's where I would look. I don't see a divide. You know, sometimes we come at problems from different points of view, but guys, that's how the actual real world works. That's, right. that's how problems get solved. That's how businesses get built. That's how ambitions are realized and opportunities are created it's okay to not have unanimity. We just need to know we're united in the shared values that we're aiming for. Great. So, speaking of the Ozarks, that is a fantastic Netflix show. <laughs> that is produced right here in Georgia. So It is, and probably won't be if we pass these RIFRA-style bills. So, yeah. So, you talk, you're essentially talking about, like, labels are antiquated. Like, all this identity politics. Like, Daniel and I, Oh, on the surface, like, oh, Daniel's run for public office. Oh, he's a, you know, liberal, whatever. But when he and I talk, there's so many things now that you, you'd go, wait a minute. They sound almost like they're conservative business people that are very socially liberal. So it's like all these names, these tags just need to go away. Useless. They're useless. They're useless. I'm sorry, but if, if human nature were so simple to define that we could neatly fit people into two or three word labels or cleverly designed boxes, we'd have done it by now. We haven't for a reason. We're empathic, um, deeply uh, perceptive uh, creatures, right? I mean, humanity at its best is that constant striving for whatever we're pulling toward that's greater than ourselves. You spoke about the media too, and you kind of think if the media would step back for a minute instead of you know, hyperventilating about Donald Trump's text, you know, his tweets rather, you know, every, every, <laughs> they are minute. pretty funny. They are funny. But I guess the disturbing thing is that people who actually go, Oh, that's, he's, he's being honest. We actually believe what he's saying. Yes, there are those out there, but the media, they're so focused on that and they don't want to talk about concrete issues. Mm. And then we're like in this whole cycle where we have a 24 hour news cycle to just fill in nonsense. And that's how you get back to somebody like your opponent that just says vile garbage and 
Yeah, but, you know, look, the great thing about this country is we don't have to take it anymore. That's right. You get a vote, guys. Get your butts to the ballot box. I love it. And this is the cool cool way for us to kind of come to a close. In the time that we're in right now, I think one of the most exciting parts of what Eric and I get to do, which is sit here and interview amazing people and, right. and have these conversations, but we get to see the vulnerability. And what I want you to share with us as, as we get ready to wrap up is, you know, what is it? And, and I know this is the cheesy question that we mentioned in the beginning, but what is what is that thing people don't know? You know, because and, I, and I'll tell you this. Right. And here's why I asked you that question. I've heard you speak at least seven or eight times in Georgia. I've been blown away every time. And I'm not saying that because you're on the show. That's I said true. in public and in private. But the thing about it is we sat here uh, getting all set up and, and we had an array of conversations. And I learned so much about you in a 30 or 45 minute period than all the speeches that you've given combined, right? So what is something about you that you would like people to really hold on to? Because we are fortunate in Forsyth County as being in what I call the gateway to North Georgia. So for folks that are in Raven County and White County and Lumpkin County, folks that are at Dahlonega, kids that are at the University of North Georgia, folks that are at the University of Georgia, what is it that they need to know, not just about your leadership, but about you as a person? Gosh, there's so many ways to answer that. I know it's funny. I know, no, it's it's funny because usually it's somebody once like a factoid, right? And 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 they're, those are always fun. Like I actually took my grandmother skydiving when she was in her sixties. That's a whole other conversation. Um, yeah. That's right. <laughs> and um, it, it's funny because when you jump tandem, they give you two rules, right? So number one is when you go out of the plane, you tuck so that you have the proper exit from the plane. And then number two is when you land, you lift your feet up so that the tandem jumper, who's the experienced skydiver, takes the impact of landing, right? And we we joke in our family that that was one too many rules for my grandma. <laughs> so, so she talked, but unfortunately broke her ankle on the landing. Um, so that's normally, you know, something like that. Or people are always get a kick out of hearing that um, I actually went on tour with a gospel choir with Robert Ray, who was commissioned by the Vatican to write the gospel mass for the church. Wow. Yeah, I was a solo in the gospel mass in Austria and Italy like 20 something years ago. So people get a kick out of those little factoids. But I think what you're asking is actually significantly more interesting, which is who are you, Sarah Miko? And like, why should we entrust you with something that is so closely tied to the future world my kids will inherit and particularly here in Georgia. And what I would say to you is this, um, I hope from this interview, you took away that I am somebody who will listen I am somebody who can see the world through a wide variety of viewpoints, even the ones that people have that I don't share those opinions. Um, I hope that you understand I'm a true believer, meaning I not only believe in this system, I not only believe in what I see as the nearly limitless potential of the state of Georgia, I believe in you as the voter. I believe you're not going to fall for politicians who tell us the best way to make a decision is to talk about all the things you don't like about your opponent or to bend and twist the facts to make your argument sound better. I believe you're smarter than most candidates and politicians give any voter credit for. I think you can smell it when you see people who don't have good intentions. I believe in your ability to sit back and set aside any kind of partisan affiliation, any kind of community or what I think John McCain called in his, you know, final remarks to the country, the tribalism of the present moment. 
Um, I believe you have the ability to set that aside and vote for the person that you really think will carry your family's interests in their heart every day. On the easy days when we're all celebrating and signing something and getting folks health care or funding our schools, um, signing those bills for broadband, whatever it is, but more importantly, you're voting for somebody who will carry that 10 times more on the days when nothing seems to work. And when there's no hope, when there's no opportunity, and when everything seems lost, your interests will put my work front and center. It'll drive how I behave. It'll drive how I bring folks together. Uh, we talked about the Rocky movie earlier, but uh, the other required viewing in my family was Star Trek, <laughs> The Wrath of Khan. And there's this scene in there where, you know, they have a test called the Kobayashi Maru. And the cadets take it, young Starfleet captains, and to learn what happens when you have to go down with the ship, when it's the no-win scenario, right? Everybody dies. And the reality is uh, Kirk, of course, cheats in the movie. And the uh, young cadet, played by Kirstie Alley, which I always think is so funny, <laughs> yeah. later asks him, you know, when they're marooned in some exotic planet, um, why did you do it? And he said, because I don't believe in the no-win scenario. And that is why my parents made us watch that movie. I don't believe in the no-win scenario. I think we can solve any problem before us if you have the right leaders. And if somebody's been in office for years and years and they haven't gotten there yet, guys, they're not fixable. They're not going to get it. So give me a chance, and I'm going to make you proud. James Garfield, who, who was a former Republican president, um, once said that now more than ever, the people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it is because the people demand these high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. If you are a resident of Georgia and you want someone that is brave, is fearless, is uh, someone that has a background and has the integrity to lead our state, I would encourage you to vote for Sarah Amico. I would encourage you to support the top of the ticket all the way down, but you've heard from a person who's laid it all out for you. Uh, she has not held anything back, and we would hope that you support her, you subscribe to Blue Topsy. Eric and I continue to inspire you and get great guests on every week, but for the, those of you that don't know, Sarah, if you could just leave your information on how people can reach you, how they can go to your website, and we'll continue to support you throughout our, our platform as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, again, I'm Sarah Rigsamico, and with your help, I'll be your next Lieutenant Governor here in Georgia. You can learn more about our campaign on our website, which is www.sarahforgeorgia.com. That's www.sarahsarah for for Georgia spelled out.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. That's a great way to kind of keep up with the issues that matter to me. And also you can occasionally see funny pictures of my kids or my grandparents or, um, you know, just an article. I think I posted an article the other day from the Atlantic about magicians. It was this fabulously written essay with absolutely nothing to do with politics. So um, I'm at Sarah Riggs Amico on Twitter. I'm Sarah Riggs Amico on Facebook. And and look, guys, I, I'll, I'll do you one better. Um, Hit us up on any of those with questions or, or send me an email. 
Um, you know, we, I'll give you my email address. It's Sarah <laughs> at sarahforgeorgia.com. S-A-R-A-H at sarahforgeorgia.com. Our press person over there is fainting now because that is my actual email address. <laughs> um, but, but guys, look, I'm asking for your vote. The least I can do is answer your questions. So I, I may not always give you, the, yes, um, we would love to take your money, <laughs> but, uh, but look, it's, um, I think we've got an opportunity to not just win here, but we've got an opportunity to change millions of lives for the better. And I'd be honored if you want to be a part of it. Keep tuning in the Blue Topsy. We'll see you next week. Blue Topsy is recorded at Sound Lab Studio in Alpharetta. And our board engineer is our guy, Daniel. So thanks to Daniel for his great work. We want to remind everybody, you can check out Blue Topsy on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Blue Topsy. And we do have the Blue Topsy website now up and running. Thanks for listening.